0: The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.
1: Welcome, my name is Jeanette Sutherland and I am delighted to have farmer, naturalist and author Patrick Laurie back with us today. In the last podcast we talked crops and in this podcast we are going to discuss hill cattle breeds and systems and the benefits they bring. Now, your book Native has a very nice picture of cattle on the back. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the breed of cattle that you've chosen?
0: Sure. So Having been um, born and brought up in Galloway, I was only ever going to have Galloway cattle. My grandfather always had black Galloway cattle. Um, a lot of my neighbors have got belted Galloways, um, even from the times before belted Galloways became as popular as they are today. They were really quite special, and quite marginal. Now they're all over the place. Um, but we've always been surrounded by Galloway cattle. And uh, yeah, so I was going to go straight into black Galloway cattle. And, and I went to I joined the society and I went to a couple of stock judging days and I was a bit overwhelmed, actually. It was it was quite difficult from an outsider to see Black Galloway cattle are very very uniform. They're very um, standard, and also there's been a lot of work done to make them a lot more commercial over the last twenty thirty years. And I was looking at some of the more traditional, like the most old fashioned kind of Galloway cattle. And so there's different types and different lines, and and, and there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff. It, it, Black Galloway cattle to me got very complicated and a little bit daunting. Um, but I was going to stick with it until I uh, happened to find some um, Riggett Galloway cattle. Yeah, that was completely by chance. I met somebody in the street who I hadn't seen for ages and we were talking about cows and I said I was looking and I got invited to go and see his Riggett Galloways and I just absolutely fell in love with them. I think they're just so smart, so beautiful. They're they they they're kind of a mixture of different uh, different patterns. They're black and white, although you can also get red and white. Um, Rigate Galloway's uh, the only effectively the only rule you need for a Riggett Galloway is to have a white stripe down the back along the spine um, like a Hereford or like a like a Longhorn um, but beyond that they can be anything they can be sort of um, almost blue roan sometimes they can be incredibly like hard black line like a pure black animal with just a white stripe down its back they can be in all shapes and sizes and you don't know you don't know what you're going to get when you're breeding them they can throw all sorts of different all sorts of different calves I've just had a calf this morning that's that's my first white calf i'd wanted a white calf for ages, but now i 've got oh, a white ring yeah that 's been long i 've been waiting for that for for ages, and you just can 't control it and sometimes um you think that you can um kind of start to predict it, going to start to work a bit of a pattern, but each year the cows have something slightly different, so yeah to me that 's really exciting, but ringlets come from a kind of a different age they come from the're very very old fashioned they' sort of eighteenth century and before, uh, and they were kind of just really stamped out of existence when people started to really focus on um, like modern commercial cattle breeds. So um, when we went for Black Galloway's, um, Galloway, Galloway's really famous for its Black Galloway cattle, but actually those, I mean, we've, we've put a lot of work into those to make those animals as uniform and as regular as they are. And actually, in producing those cattle, we've actually got rid of a lot of much more irregular colors and patterns. And I mean, they're all the same. They're all the same animal under the skin. But, um, yeah, we seem to go through a phase about 100, 150 years ago where we absolutely wanted uniformity. And the only thing that farmers wanted from their livestock was just completely predictable peas in a pod uniformity. And so these rigid genetics, these rigid bloodlines just, just vanished. They were just sort of squeezed out altogether. So they were pretty well extinct for for about a hundred years. But the great thing is they kept producing, being produced by throwbacks. So um, normal black Galloway cattle or belted Galloway cattle would occasionally have these weird, uh, like throwback riggit calves. And for a long time, nobody knew what they were, and people couldn't really make sense of them. Uh, and it was only like in the nineteen eighties, uh, early nineties, when people started to actually take riggits seriously again um, and breed them back into back into prominence. But because the rigged genetics are so incredibly recessive and finicky and difficult to pin down, if you're dealing with cattle, if you're dealing with galloways that have been improved, and yeah, there's a lot of strange stuff seems to have happened to Galloways when they went to Canada. Um, there's a lot of very, very big, tall galloways now in the last 30, 40 years that were never there before. A lot of galloways were shipped to Canada in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and when they came back, um, yeah, they were quite different. And so now we're dealing with different Galloway bloodlines. Things get very confusing. I don't really have – a. I mean, obviously, I'm only looking in at this from the outside. But the, I think the key is that if you've got rigged Galloway cattle, they, the, the, those genetics are only expressed in the oldest, smallest, fattest, shortest, slowest, most traditional type of old cattle. And actually, if you cross a rigged Galloway with an improved – commercial beast you simply won't get it simply won't you won't get a rig at galloway so yeah i think probably if you just treat the riget the riget markings as being like an indicator of the fact that you're dealing with something really old fashioned um, and actually, if you if you if you like the color and if you like the pattern, then it's a they're a real treat to work with. Really nice to work with. When I first started, when I first got into cattle, and I was looking at black Galloways, and I, I must say, I never really thought about working with belted Galloways. I'm not I'm not keen on I'm not too keen on belted Galloways. But I was speaking to somebody about um, different breeds and all the rest of it, and how, how what I would decide. And the person said, Well, actually, with, Galloway, with, with cattle generally, um, you're always going to struggle to make money working with cattle, particularly on hill ground. Uh, he said, you've got to work with animals that you absolutely love because um, you're going to have to be working with them every day for the rest of your life. You might as well pick something that you like. Um, so to me, that kind of sealed the deal. Um, and in some ways, yeah, I, I don't agree with his sentiment that you'll never make money doing it. But yeah, it certainly adds a lot of pleasure to it. If you love the animals you're working with, yeah, it makes the, makes the whole job worthwhile.
1: That's an incredible words of wisdom there. I think for any form of lifestyle, really, but that's good. Would you say that the riggets tend to be on the smaller side than other Galloways. Like if you're at a mart watching them, would the riggets tend to be on the smaller frame size than the than the tradi- than the tradition standard Galloways?
0: It's interesting. There's so many... Galloways uh, is such a broad church, such an enormous spread of different animals. I bought my first riggets from a very traditional white Galloway breeder who'd put in a riggit bull and produced some riggit calves. They are very short, stocky, tubby animals. They are... Taller at the shoulder than my hip, maybe, but yeah, maybe sort of slightly below my chest height. But since getting into Galloways, I start to be able to compare and contrast with others. I've seen white Galloways that are huge by comparison to my rigged Galloways. I've seen black Galloways that are almost sort of—I um, mean, not as big as Limousines, but getting on for being tall, very, very high, high-backed um, animals. And just recently, I've been—I've taken on some more riggets, which are a completely different shape, very tall, much more commercially shaped. So uh, there's no kind of set standard shape, and I think it's the same. It'll be the same with every breed. There's just different lines. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. The more I know about it, so when I first started looking in at cattle, I must say cattle really look the same to me. And I think probably they do look the same to anybody who's first getting into cattle. Is well, one cow is a cow, and how do you actually see which one's better than the other? And actually, aside from it, how do you see which one's better than the other? How do you see which one is different from the other? Like you can't, you can't necessarily see pros and cons. You can't necessarily see a difference at all. Yeah, learning to see now when I look at cows, I, like some of the differences between them are outrageously obvious, but it's really hard to tell whether or not I've spot, I, I can only spot them because I know the beasts I'm talking about. In if, Yeah, in summary, I suppose probably if you said in general terms, riggets are smaller. Consum- I've got two belted Galloways at the moment, and they are considerably smaller than belted Galloways. Um, but equally those are quite big belted Galloways and I've got quite small riggets. So it's difficult to to kind of make that, um, make that comparison.
1: Excellent. So now your book shows the ups and downs of a new cattle keeper. What tips would you give your younger self or to someone else who is starting up with cattle?
0: I think probably cows can seem quite overwhelming. They can seem, big and scary and, and I'm not, I don't use the expression scary lightly. I, I, I am a bit, I I was always a bit scared and always a bit intimidated by cows because they are so big, so heavy. So what I felt at the time was so unpredictable. Um, yeah, I, it was a, it was a big leap and it took a certain amount of sort of um, gulping and swallowing uh, my confidence to, to get into it. And I think in some ways I've got over that i'm not i'm not exactly frightened of my cows anymore but at the same time i think that's a healthy approach to take because there's been times in marking calves and there's been times in working with cattle where um yeah you're right to be respectful of them and so i think probably i would like to say to myself i would save myself some bruises and some nasty little run-ins if i probably would say to a new new cattle keeper yeah just have some respect for them they can be very soft uh a lovely experience going up and rub them and comb them and feed them by hand and all the rest of it but at the same time that's a big animal and even if it doesn't mean to i think probably that's the key is even if they don't mean to they can do you a lot of mischief so um yeah just just don't get too <laughs> they're, they're, they're not cuddly they're they're, <laughs> they're big serious units so yeah I don't know that. off the top of my head i would say that would be that would be First and foremost, but at the same so time, once we're going you get for
1: number one, self preservation, and yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But then I don't know, I've had sheep for a few years, and I'm not, yeah, I'm not too fussed about sheep. Oh, sheep are all right. I've had <laughs> pigs for years, and pigs are, yeah, all right. But um, there's something to me about cattle that's just absolutely it just clicked, and um, I can see how they'd be a headache, I can see how they'd be intimidating, I can see, I could see all. I see all the downsides, but I think probably sometimes it's just it just feels right. And as soon as you as soon as I had my first cows, I thought, yep, this is just this is what I this is what I need to be doing. It was like a real click in my back of my head, just went, Yep, you're on the right line here. And I think probably that kind of love for them has carried me through a lot of difficult stuff. And I think probably again this idea of love, this idea of doing something because you really, really want to do it, um, kind of blows away most of the obstacles. And I think probably if you've got that in place and if you're really keen and really passionate about what you're doing, then I think I would say just follow that and it'll blast, it'll, yeah, it'll blast through any of the many roadblocks and difficulties. And yeah, I suppose another piece of advice would be to simply go with them. You have, you have to trust, with, trust them and go with them because you can't, you simply, they're too big. You can't make them do what they don't want to do you've got to work with what they're giving you. Um, and that too was a very difficult thing because initially I was like, well, you are my cows. You will do what I say. And I was like, well, that's, that's nonsense. That's that's just never going to happen. Um, you can press them to do a small amount of things, but you can encourage them to do a far bigger array of things. And if it's not the day to do, if it's not the day to work with cows, then walk away. Yeah, I don't know. Probably there's 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 loads. It's difficult to put the thick end of 10 years worth of working with uh, these cows into what would I say to my younger self but yeah I think probably the key is um, if you if you don't absolutely love the cows and you're not genuinely really bound into what you're doing then I think you're probably going to run up against all sorts of problems
1: Well thank you very much and if we had a time machine we could do that but we'll just have to imagine that for now yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We're going to hear our first excerpt from Patrick's book and it's about the importance of hill cows <laughs>
0: We can never measure the loss of old hill cows. We're only just beginning to see that our trusty old natives called for a kind of farming which improved everything it touched. And now our wildlife is hamstrung without them. The crashing decline of birds like curlews is just a symptom of our withdrawal from tough, tricky places. Now it's easier to make the hills into something new, and policymakers are nudging farmers to ditch their livestock and sow their hills with commercial forests. This is the final straw for curlews. The birds have lived beneath open skies for too long to tolerate trees. They abandon the hills where plantings grow and the survivors fail and rot beneath strange new pressures from the trees.
1: In the last few years, the Farm Advisory Service has had a series of workshops throughout the highlands entitled Derelict to Productive. What are the main benefits for the environment and for the economy that either bringing back hill cattle or maintaining hill cattle produce?
0: I think probably in the last six months i have gone on to a gone on to, to working on a project which i think is probably really relevant to um, derelict to productive is i've taken on uh, the lease on a, a 200 acre triple s i which hasn't been grazed for 40 years it was de- what's interesting is from a conservation perspective it was designated in the late 70s um because it had golden eagle hen harrier and black grouse and within a few years of it having been designated it had lost pretty much all its black grouse and its breeding hen harriers. And that's largely because just the habitat dynamic just completely changed. Everything overgrew. It was just without management. It was just no longer what those birds needed. There's still a pair of golden eagles there now, but they don't, they're do not they not very productive because there's not an awful lot of prey for them. Um, so we've also lost most of the mountain hares. We've lost a lot of grouse. We've lost a lot of waders on that hill. So it's a 40-year agreement, which has just been lifted. And it was interesting that the conservationists uh, at SNH, then basically said we really need to restore this to agricultural productivity. This is no longer performing to suit its designation, which is kind of against the narrative. Sometimes when you hear about rewilding and ideas of like hands-off management, um, this was like people hand on hand on heart saying we 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 almost did wrong here. We need to we need to turn the clock back. We need to get farming back in place. Yeah, it's a, it's been a huge challenge. I mean, aside from anything, 40 years without any repair on dikes and fencing, um, yeah, has taken a toll. It took me what, about two and a half months to get everything um, sort of watertight for livestock. And even then, my cows are still finding ways out periodically. But the difference it's made already, um, we get in Galloway, as you um, do all the way up the West Coast, very, very thick white grass, which has come through and pretty much smothered everything. We've got a lot of bog myrtle, lot of heather there's deep peat in some areas it's just it's almost sort of hip high white grass across a 200 acre site with a lot of willow scrub coming through a lot of brown coming through uh in some ways it's really good for uh we've still got some black grass but it's very good for winter um raptors so we get a lot of merlin we get hen harriers we get uh, wintering hen harriers we get like there's a there's a, still a significant conservation interest on the site but Actually, when you try and walk through it, and you th- you try and expect, say, curlews or black grouse to nest or breed in that kind of habitat, it's a non-starter. A black grouse chick that's smaller than your fist is going to die in half a day trying to make its way through that kind of jungle. It seemed obvious. I had been looking for a project to get involved in for for like this for a while. I met up with the landowner and we talked about some of the opportunities there. It seemed it was very very difficult not to take on the challenge. I must say, but at the same time, it's very difficult to see why anyone else would do. So I'm being particularly enthusiastic and, and excited by the prospect of this piece of work. But my neighbours and people um, living near me said, well, basically, what are you doing? This, that's that's ridiculous. There's a, particularly a history there of uh, redwater fever, very, very bad for ticks. Um, the ticks being related to, we get big stags coming out of the forest, um, red deer coming out of the forest, which are, the stalkers tell me are, are quite often very ticky. But already, so the cows have now been out Uh, that that all had to be factored in that these were all concerns trying to make the place livestock proof, uh, stock proof. If cows escape, then there's nothing then to stop them going to Kilmarnock. There's nothing then to stop them going to, they can pretty much get all the way to Glasgow from there, given that it's a huge commercial forest um, all the way around the property. Uh, If they're gone, they're gone. So that was a, a huge point of stress. There were loads of reasons not to do it, but they've been on the Hill now for two months and They've made a huge difference. They've eaten a massive amount of um, white, white grass, millennial grass. We're now getting breeding snipe in places where there were never snipe before. And snipe are okay, sniper very quick to react to stuff like this. And actually, this is only year one of what really ought to be like a 10-year project. Um, but you can see an immediate upsurge. I'm doing lots of work on um, dung beetles and invertebrates associated with, with, with cattle. Dung beetles have gone absolutely through the roof from a standing start. I had, it's a really cool project. Um, I had a um, an acoustic sound engineer came to visit yesterday. He is recording, um, he was recording overnight last night, so I'm really interested to see what comes of it. He's recording um, bat frequencies. Um, oh, wonderful. He's got incredible high-spec um, equipment, which was left out this morning between 3.15 and 5. On that, he can then visualize different bat calls, and then he can send them off to be identified. So it, I'm trying to do like baseline surveys. Uh, I've done vegetation survey, I've done bird survey, but the key to me is really to measure this, really to measure what happens in terms of conservation value. But at the same time, I'm always frustrated because farmers, conservation-minded farmers are are good at doing this kind of stuff. They're good at doing surveys, they're good at measuring their impact, they're good at quantifying the benefit of what they're doing for, for, for conservation. But at the same time, it seems like every farmer that does it has to almost kind of reinvent the wheel, prove again that conservation is part of agriculture. Like So now I'm gonna have all this data, all this stuff to prove that I'm doing good. Part of me is frustrated that I'm like, well, we know that this does good. We've got <laughs> thousands of case studies on, on ground exactly like this. I'm not doing anything novel here. And yet for some reason, instinctively, I feel like, oh, well, I'm gonna to have to prove this. I'm gonna to have to, this is gonna to have to be totted up. I'm gonna to have to have data to back this up. We we know this works. This has worked for decades. This has worked for, for centuries. And actually, we've really understood some of the ecological like interactions between livestock and wildlife. Like we've known about that for for the entirety of my life. So, I suppose probably um, beef livestock farmers are generally quite often on the back foot in the media, uh, being told that we're destroying the world. Um, maybe it's kind of like this instinctive defense mechanism is we've got to prove actually that we're doing good, but it's obvious we're doing good because it's a triple SI. It's quite prescriptive in terms of what I can put on. Um, I'm only allowed to put on 10 beasts in the first year. And I only had available 10 uh, like year old, just over a year old um, steers. They went on, the grass was very late to come this year and it didn't do very well to start with. And I thought, oh God, what have I done? Like I've made this huge case. I've, I've identified the hill I've chosen to die on by saying I'm going to do great good on this hill. And then I put my cows out and then the cows did really did badly. Um, but it was simply because the grass was so late this year it was so incredibly dry everything stayed white until sort of early june but it's amazing now to see them they are absolutely going there, as fat as barrels and they are piling piling through grass it's 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 really impressive so i suppose on one hand i'm looking at the conservation aspects and saying wow this is this is just brilliant i'm really excited and on the other hand i'm thinking i'm really looking forward now to the store cattle there's a galloway store cattle auction at the end of october i'm going to have some quite nice beasts to go through that so um in a way, I'm going to see a bit of a bit of financial return at the end of the tunnel here.
1: And, and I think that's very important because although, like we've talked about the the conservation benefits of cattle, which are myriad and obvious, it's also important that from the economic point of view that there's a market. So the marrying up of having a, a identified market and being able to do all that biodiversity benefit is is so important. What do you think are the what do you think is needed to better market hill cattle, both as breeding replacements and the finished product?
0: It's one of these Or do you um, even
1: think it's a problem or
0: <laughs> Well see so there's, I I do think it's a problem because I think the costs there's costs and work in some ways trying to compare more commercially produced livestock with hill cattle is it gets confusing because immediately you stumble into a very, very complicated Um, industry operating at a number of different speeds in a number of different landscapes. Everybody's trying to do something slightly different. Uh, This is why we always come back to this frustrating thing that you see in the media about farmers say this and farmers do that. There's no such thing as farmers. There's just a whole load of individual farmers um, and everybody's got different objectives. Everybody's got a different backstory. Everybody's working on different ground. The idea that farmers operate as some kind of like cohesive single entity is just, as far as I'm concerned, is absolutely nonsense. You never meet two farmers who've got exactly the same attitude to stuff. Everybody's doing different different things, and that marries out in the in terms of produce as well. Some people have got really good uh, access to market. I mean, round here we've got a farm shop that's based on um, Belted Galloway beef, and Belties are so iconic that everybody immediately loves them. You can spot them a mile away, though. They sort of they stand out. They're a real sort of supposedly a big a big symbol of the southwest. Uh, that that a lot of that does its own marketing for you, but um, that to me is interesting because then we're starting to talk about buying specific breeds rather than what I'm interested in more is buying the buying the animal that's done the conservation work.
1: The system is more it? important than the
0: breed. Yeah, and I think the system is more important than the breed, and quite often you see, given that there's been a, a an upsurge in interest in Galloway's uh, recently here in Galloway, there's been some bigger commercial producers buying. Galloway store cattle and finishing them, but finishing them on sidage or often finishing them in sheds or finishing them on really good ground in order to get under the thirty month um, deadline. And part of me is like, well, yeah, technically that's that's a yeah, fine. I can't, won't argue with the fact that you've produced a Galloway beast there, but um, Galloway cattle are designed to fit into a kind of moorland rough grazing habitat, rough, rough grazing environment. That if you really want to get the best out of the product, it's not simply a matter of buying. The right cow, and then doing what you want with it. You've got to buy the right cow. You've got to have it in the right place, and you've got to work with it on its terms. So, um, there's so many moving parts from turning a from turning a, a calf into a, a display in a butcher's window. There's there are so many forks in the road. You've got to you've got to get it right again and again and again and again. And I suppose probably the tantalising thing from a producer, from a farmer's perspective, looking at that is wow, when it works, it is unbelievable. And yet, at the same time, it's also terrifying because it can go wrong at any stage along that. Right up to the moment, even when uh, it goes into the frying pan. If you burn that steak, that's like that's two two and a half years worth of somebody's work that's gone into that. And loads of really skilled people. Loads of like, there's loads of loads of knowledge, loads of know-how, loads of resources gone into that into that product. Um, Riggit Galloway's um, that I've chosen to work with are obscure and. Nobody really knows about them. I'm going to struggle to add value to what I'm doing. But I think there is growing awareness of the fact that cows can play a huge role in terms of reversing biodiversity loss. Uh, They can play a huge role in terms of, yeah, just cows are, are, to me, an integral part of of a sustainable farm system. Um, And I suppose I'm just slightly frustrated by the fact that it's so complicated that it's difficult to find people who... Difficult to find consumers who are prepared to go to that depth or that level um, to really basically unlock why these animals are so brilliant. God, I can hear now just over my <laughs> shoulder. I can hear a bull squalling. I don't know. if you-
1: <laughs> That's fantastic. No, we can hear it here. <laughs>
0: yeah, okay. sorry about that. Uh, it's, <laughs> it, 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 it's appalling that uh, I had an escape on, when was it? Sunday morning. Uh, there was like this awful, like sort of uh, Jurassic Park rumbling. And um, my bull had escaped through the dike and gone in with a, he's a, he's a Galloway bull. So he's, he's yeah, two thirds of a ton. He'd got in with a charolet bull, my neighbor's charolet bull, who's easily a ton. Um, and the two of them were digging a massive hole and flinging clods of mud all over the place. And the, <laughs> I, the sound was absolutely unbelievable, but I stood back from it. And I thought there's nothing, there's nothing I can do here. If I try and get involved with this, I'm I'm basically a pancake. I'm done. So I then sort of had to just wait for them basically to settle the fact that one of the bulls was considerably bigger than the other bull. And actually, was it really worth us fighting? No, not really worth us fighting. At which point my bull then said, yeah, okay, fine. I think I'm going to choose the honorable exit here and pretend to be interested in something else. That grumbling sound that makes your absolute blood run cold. You've got to love this whole thing. You've got to absolutely love cattle. They're so endlessly interesting. Even when the you've had a a difficult day working with them, it's still brilliant to stand back off them at all hours and you can just see every little quiet little piece of business, every little piece of communication they do. I think they're just endlessly interesting. And Again, it goes back to the the idea that um, if you didn't absolutely love what you were doing, then um, you've got to wonder why you're doing it. From the, uh from the marketing perspective, I find it kind of confusing because, there's, as I say, things get so complicated so quickly. But I like to think that if you can develop a good story, if you're good at communicating what you're trying to do, there are enough people out there who are interested and want to buy into that product. But um, at the same time, I look at my cows and think if I was marketing them straight into a supermarket, I'd be hemorrhaging money and I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be producing anything really worth having. Um, because Galloways mature so slowly, and they just can't match the more commercial breeds. But at the same time, my overheads are absolute peanuts because I I don't have any sheds. I, I don't I don't I'm not required to keep cattle in over the winter. My 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 inputs are very very little. And actually, when people have talked to me, why did you choose Reggie Galloway cattle? I, I originally said almost half jokingly because I can't afford any other breeds of cattle. Um, but actually, that's that's true. I wouldn't be able to afford to keep any other breed of cattle because I can't I don't have any big machinery I don't have any sheds I've got to just work on on the real lowest of the low inputs the most expensive thing I've bought so far as part of this project is a IFA Williams cattle trailer um, but when uh, yeah you look into farming and think well, how expensive it must be to start yeah provided you're prepared to start small it really doesn't have to cost an awful lot so i suppose probably when the time comes to start marketing my cattle i'm i'm, I'm ahead in terms of recovering my costs i don't have to sell a lot before i'm back up to to, to zero
1: no and like it's very important that you look at things holistically in the main because i think sometimes you can get caught up on like the prices that, uh, realized at the market. but obviously as you say there's those depends what other costs that price is having to cover for that's where the profitability comes in or the the viability so like you say it's it's a, a complex thing and now Patrick is going to read another excerpt from
0: his book If you work with native breeds you know the drawbacks the beasts are small and take years to mature but there are redeeming features people have taste tested different kinds of beef even with blindfolds traditional slow grown meat comes up on top every time particularly when it comes from older animals That's not to say native beef is essentially better than commercially produced meat, but it does imply that it's different. So try Galloway beef and compare it with a Highlander or a Shorthorn. Then compare your favourite with a Continental breed. You'll find that they're all quite different. And it's frustrating how bad we are at celebrating diversity in our meat. It's odd because beef is a premium product, and we like to place value on detail and nuance. Select a medium-bodied Pinot Noir from the Loire Valley, and savour notes of cherry and spiced plums, supported by ripe, juicy tannins. Calling it French wine would hardly do it justice, but pour a glass and enjoy it with your Scottish beef.
1: A lot of your, the, the project seems to be uh, looking back and rescuing sort of traditional systems before they disappear, but you're not a complete out because actually you've been using some new technology and you knew, um, when you've been taking this hill back into grazing. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it?
0: Sure. Yeah. No. I think, in general terms, there's loads of really good stuff that's been handed down, like uh, historically, culturally, about cattle. I mean, Galloway is famous for its cattle. Has always been famous for cattle. We've had some really, really good stockmen, really good farmers, um, livestock breeders in Galloway the last, yeah, 150, 200 years. Galloway, cattle are a big deal here, and there's a huge amount we can learn from history. But at the same time, um, Galloway is not it's no longer the landscape that it was 50, 60 years ago. We've got a huge amount of commercial forestry. We've lost um, almost three quarters of our hill farms have gone to commercial forestry now. It's a very different landscape and it's very hard to expect a lot of the old traditions, the old lessons, the old, uh, the old heritage to stand, to to withstand that. So in lots of ways I borrow in a big way from traditional agriculture, but at the same time you've got to adapt and you've got to move on and keep an eye on, on, on progress and modernity. So putting just a few cows out on a big 200-acre spread of hill ground, which is very rugged with big granite outcrops, lots of big scree banks, and where it gets to be wet, there's a lot of willow and alder scrub coming through. My big concern was that was basically just losing my cattle within the, within the hill, not necessarily that they'd escape, but they would remain where I put them. I just then wouldn't be able to find them. Um, so I looked about at some satellite tags, I got into um, a really good uh, company that provided like GPS satellite tags. Um, Those went on the cows and they've made such a difference. I almost now wonder why on earth I was even trying to imagine doing this project without those tags because they've saved me hours and hours. I can, first of all, pretty much first thing I do every morning, roll over in bed, open my phone and check where the cows are. Um, And then they tell that app on my phone tells me to within 10, 15 feet where the cows are, not only where they are, but where they spent the night gives me like a rundown of where they've been the last 24 hours it gives me uh, body temperature which is actually surprisingly useful uh, given that I've got concerns about tick fever and some of the first signs of tick fever are increased uh, temperature it gives a lot of information I still am required to check the cattle because of triple I'm still required to check the cattle every day I don't necessarily think given when you look at trad- the tradition of managing hill cattle it's much more hands-off just leave the cows to it yeah, there's a requirement to check them every day. The legal requirement to check them every day. So it really makes it so much quicker. Rather than trekking about a big 200 acre piece of ground, what looking for them, I know where they are before I even set off. So I just go straight to them, check they're fine. I've got them on. Um, they come to a bag now with pellets, so I can get even if I can just get near them. I just shake the bag and they come out. If I was every day trying to sift through a vast area of very rugged moorland it would be, yeah, an hour and a half, two hours work every day, whereas it is, it's like 20 minutes. When Galloways were being bred, before being first produced, there was just such a huge, much bigger availability of manpower. It would have been much easier to keep tabs on this kind of thing. Um, I suppose probably there's just now so little money in this kind of work that you've got to take shortcuts. Anything that can save you time, anything that could save you work is, is really worth having. And yet at the same time, it's still true to the original. It's not like it's become some sort of, new technological wizardry it's it, it is still exactly what it was this business is exactly what it was 150 years ago it's just a shortcut it's a it's a it's a help
1: but i think it's if some of the old herders could uh, if you could show them your phone and the app i think they'd be a gog. <laughs>
0: yeah no I, absolutely that and um i suppose probably the i even people who aren't terribly interested in code i know this is not this is not really new technology. That's what that's what surprises me. I know in America, they're working on satellite tags which go on butterflies to monitor their migration. And we've put satellite tags on swallows and, and cuckoos. Uh, hanging um, a couple of pounds of GPS tag off a cow's neck is like 1980s technology. And yet at the same time, I look at it and I'm like, oh, it's so exciting though. I feel like a total nerd. Um, I'm so far behind here, but it does for some reason why it feels it feels very like like WizKids um, technology of the future. The interface on the app, I must say the, the company that designed them are, are great uh, because they kind of anticipate that the people who are going to be using these tags aren't necessarily great at technology. So the tags actually arrive working. They show up on your phone when they're in the box and you literally get the cow in the crush, put the tag on it, and it's working the whole time you're doing that. If there was any formatting or setup process or or like I would lose interest I would fluff it I wouldn't be able to do it Um, so actually it was very cool when I heard that the tags were actually in the post I was able to log on to the website and actually track them coming to the house from from the manufacturers Uh, being aware that um, farmers and uh, farmers aren't always the best kitted out to deal with technology making something as simple as possible has really helped with that as well
1: we are now going to hear another section from Patrick's book Native. Uh
0: So we came to this work without any baggage. We chose Galloways and Rough Country and everything else fell into place behind them. For all I mourned a lack of washers and pot rivets, I was keenly aware that starting fresh is a rare privilege in this ancient place. Most of my neighbors inherited something fully formed from their parents. Some found happiness in that continuity, but many wrestled to steer their farms into something different. Lots of farmers never managed to break this loop and pass the land to their children, having simply kept it in order for a few decades. I wondered how I would feel to be taking on my father's business, battling his ruts and patterns to find my own direction. Fantastic.
1: What other support would you like to see to um, people keep hill cattle? And are there any lessons from other countries that you think we should be learning?
0: To me, the biggest obstacle, the biggest obstacle in Galloway towards hill cattle is, is simply just fencing. And it's just huge capital costs required in fencing. I don't think there'd be an enormous resistance to doing a lot more of this kind of work. As I say, given that a lot of hill ground is badly fragmented by commercial forestry, um, a lot of the fences along marches have just collapsed, and nobody wants to – the foresters don't want to split the cost of restoring um, livestock fences. The farmer doesn't necessarily want to do it. So it just then means that – I'm talking extensive areas, tens of thousands of acres are not grazed in Galloway every year, which could be and could be unlocking a huge conservation potential simply because – there's a there's just a, like a prohibitive cost of fencing, and I'm not sure how that can be overcome. When we look in the low ground in Galloway, there's really a the kind of intensive grassland production. People are really fighting the value of land in Galloway. Really, that kind of land in Galloway holds its own. It's really competitive. It's really commercial, and it's it's safe. It's steady, and it's it's going to be fine. And looking in when I first got interested in in keeping cattle. I was thinking, where am I going to keep them? Well, I can't afford to put them anywhere. Well, hill ground is going to be pretty much the only place I can put them. Um, and yet, there's so much hill ground available that is just like lying spare, like lying wasted, and, and nobody can do anything with it because there's no fence around it. I don't think it's prohibitively expensive, but it does it needs a lot of it needs a lot of support, needs a lot of backing. At the same time with cattle, you also need handling facilities. Some of it's very remote, so you're gonna need people to get out there. Just there just isn't the money in it. There isn't the out there isn't the capital outlay and also there isn't like the reward. There isn't the money to repay to you to do it. Looking at other parts of Europe, there's further in into Eastern Europe, there's similar issues around what being called land abandonment. Um I wouldn't necessarily call it land abandonment in Galloway, but it's land under use or or misuse or failure to integrate land into other land uses. I was looking in eastern Poland. I had a visit at Christmas time to eastern Poland. This sort of general just decline and withdrawal of agriculture from rougher, harder to work with places and this move towards a slightly more rewilded landscape, uh, more for conservation and and wildlife tourism. Part of me thinks, yeah, that's, that's a lot of people agitating for that in Scotland. We can have the best of both worlds. That's that's what I suppose is frustrating me about this, is we can have the best of both worlds. We can have um, some really nice, rich, naturally diverse habitats, but we can also have a thread of agriculture going through it. And it's one of the things, too, when you travel about, as I do, been doing advisory work for, for estates and farms, looking to get people in to do cattle, because um, they recognize the benefit of hill cattle, um, there isn't the money specifically in cattle. So they're always looking for a cattleman's stroke something else, either a cattleman stroke gamekeeper or a cattleman wildlife ranger or a cattleman stroke forester or, so the idea that cattle in the future is maybe more something that sits alongside other skill sets and whether or not hill cattle you can actually afford to have someone who's like a full time hill stockman or whether that's got to be knitted into other work that goes on elsewhere. I'm not too fussed actually if there's no such thing as a full time hill stockman. I do think that the work needs to be done and um, we, we need to focus on it doesn't matter how you fill most of your time, even if you're you're you could be doing any other work, provided you've still got an eye on the hill. I suppose that overlaps with with crofting too in a way. The work needs to be done and how we pay for it is almost secondary. But I don't know there's just huge obstacles, there's huge problems here in Galloway. And I'm sure it's the same uh, further up the west coast as well, with with this kind of infrastructure decay. We haven't been doing this now for in lots of places, particularly since foot and mouth. Foot and mouth disease wiped out all, a huge number of our hill cattle herds here. Um, and it was very costly, very difficult, very awkward to replace them. That's now been 20 years since foot and mouth. And actually, a lot of fences that were good at foot and mouth have rotted and fallen to pieces. A lot of gathering pens need to be restored. There's just a cost to get up and running again, which I think is just prohibitive.
1: So for future environmental schemes, it would be really useful if there was a, a, a capital element for the infrastructure for hill cattle, as well as rewarding the, the agile, having the hill cattle for the vegetation. It needs to yeah, be together
0: absolutely and i think too it's ridiculous sometimes when i see um like habitat management um specifications or or advisory work being handed out by by um, snh or by conservation bodies they say what we need to do is put cattle on that hill and quite often there's no real understanding no understanding at all of what actually that requires like what that calls for and actually yeah i think probably conservationists quite often need to realize that it's a huge major leap of faith when you're putting cattle out in a place where they haven't maybe haven't been for a while it's dangerous for the cattle you could it's dangerous for you it's dangerous for the cattle it's it's a, it's, it's a big risk and there's no real there's often no real recognition of the fact that while we need to put cattle in these places it's really challenging very expensive um and fencing is just it's just such a cost, and particularly on when you're talking about extensive hill ground, I mean you could be even for a smallish area of, uh, of grazing you're going to be putting in like two or three miles of fence. The only reason I was able to get this piece of ground that I've taken on this year is because I did all the fencing myself, but even that cost me a fortune and it took yeah. me ages it took me it took <laughs> me weeks to do because the old fence had been overgrown with willow and bog myrtle, so that had to all be cleared out and then the fence the fence post fortunately didn't have to be replaced, but um, just, it's a big job. Nobody else is going to do this. Um, this is, the no, unless you're mad keen, and as I say, unless you're mad keen and very enthusiastic about, about a project like this, you, you're just not going to, it's just not worth it.
1: No, it's it's incredible the the interconnectedness of things because, like you're saying, both there's the capital element and also there has to be some element of joined up marketing if there's going to be a product produced that's maybe like different and maybe doesn't fit into traditional sales structures and things like that. It's it there's a lot of uh, scope, but there's a a lot of challenges ahead as well.
0: Yeah, no, t- totally. And sp- one thing I suppose that does give me a bit of does give me a bit of hope is. That when you look, you can get support for um, a much more commercial operation. You can get support for putting in sheds. You can get support for slurry tanks. You get support for for big for big uh, lagoons and uh, these sort of very very intensive operations. A lot of support for it. Actually, when it comes to hill cattle, fine. I complain about the cost of fencing, but that's your only cost once you've got cattle on the right piece of hill ground. I mean, we, what else are you what else are you really doing with them? You're not really. You're not giving them expensive supplements. You don't have to pay to keep them in the shed. You don't have um, water bills. You don't have straw to buy. You don't like. There's your 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 costs are pretty much nothing. So it's always frustrating then to think that there's often no help for the, that kind of capital investment on hill ground, uh, and yet the uh, department's prepared to support you for a huge amount more cost to keep cows in a shed, um, but. Um, I don't know. I look sometimes at what actually it's going to cost me to produce these cows compared to what my neighbours do, and they're producing them in half the time it takes me to do it, but it, it's costing me, it costing me very little. And I suppose then it's frustrating that my, that my my bottleneck in financially is just just simply a good fence, just paying for a good fence, whereas they're laying concrete foundations for for extensive sheds and 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 handling facilities. So just to just
1: to end. Um, Uh, in your book I learnt an awful lot about the history of uh, cattle in Galloway and now Patrick is going to read another excerpt from his book
0: The way the land lies there are only a few paths into the hills most were bound by tracks and paths but the road which runs over the old brig of the Blackwater was the surest way home for the raiders the Galloway farmers knew that if they could reach that bridge before the Highlanders got to it they'd have a chance to air their differences one night the raiders came and the farmers were ready "'They rushed to the black water and lined the old brig with muskets. "'They'd fight to the death, and the men waited above the winding water beneath a glitter of stars. "'They heard their own stolen cattle driven towards them in the dark and began to fight. "'Musket balls whirled in the night, and the beasts milled in sad confusion, but it was deadlock. "'The farmers couldn't catch up their cattle, and the Highlanders couldn't force them over the bridge. "'That was when the outlaws fetched up a drum of pitch and set it on fire.' They tossed that burning soup onto the herd and the beasts were so mad with rage and pain that they stormed the bridge and tossed the defenders into the river. People say the outlaws rode those burning cattle across the bridge, screaming like demons and firing their pistols into the smoke. It wouldn't be long until those bandits were rooted out and hung, but they left us one hell of a tale. And it rings so well in Galloway because only a Highlander could think of burning a live cow. That flair for drama has made them famous, but we've always taken cattle too seriously to risk their health on a piece of garish showboating. And maybe that's another reason why visitors drive past Galloway and head up to Perth and Fort William. Even now, Galloways draw an enthusiastic following in strange and far-flung places. Some of the best animals are found in Yorkshire and Ireland, and there's a big market for Galloways in Germany. We've got little use for them anymore in a land without open hills and rough grazing, and while many do great work in wild country and hard mountains across the world, the beasts are just as easily reinvented as ornaments and showpieces for lowland parks. Americans call Belted Galloway's Oreo cows because they say that the black and white pattern reminds them of a biscuit that they have over there. Whatever new guys those animals take and whatever job they're asked to do, we deserve to be damn proud of our most celebrated export.
1: How important do you think cattle and hill cattle are for cultural value?
0: I think that... They're huge, and I think we underrate it. Um, I think lots of times we, we look at uh, hill farming and we imagine it's just sheep. I always get frustrated when it's uh, people talk about hill farming as being about sheep. I think cattle being... Uh, native being truly indigenous where um, sheep all having come in from the middle east i do love sheep i'm from a sheep farming family i'm not um, saying there's anything particularly wrong with sheep but at the same time i think when we talk about hill farming we talk about uh, like stereotypes or, or imagery around 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 hill farming we immediately think of sheep and i think that's just unfair so it's, I'm not, it's not a criticism of sheep it's a it's more a redressing the balance and trying to make sure that cattle remain part of that because i think culturally particularly in the south of Scotland. Um, where we focus so much on Galloways and you go to the Northeast and there's so much focus on um, Angus cattle and uh, Northwest and the Highland cattle. I think there's a real like local pride. There's a real regional pride when it comes to cows. I think we need to tap into that. That's something that's really important. And it's something too, that's very, it's very primal. I mean, so many, particularly in Scotland, you look historically, um, we had an entire cattle based economy. Um, Cattle was wealth. um, Cows were how you measured your success in the world, everything, all the Celts, all the ancient pagan ceremonies being based around um, cattle rituals, and I don't necessarily think that's all gone. I still think there's something really quite stirring, quite important, quite culturally sort of powerful about about cows and about being your own cows. Something sort of mystical and and, and really crucial. And I don't think it's there in, it's not there in every in every country. It's not there in every region. So where it's there, I think it's important. Um And having them out in the natural environment in in the natural environment um I don't know there's been times when you I've been out to check my livestock and I've seen cows grazing through woodland and grazing onto heather moorland, and you think this could be five hundred years ago, this could be a thousand years ago this this is this is part of a continuation of a tradition that's just uh, i'm I'm always just frustrated that we can't necessarily put a proper price on it. we can't really reward it we don't really recognize it for what it is, but it's really powerful it's a real sort of stomach punch sometimes when you just see you feel yourself as being part of a tradition and and I'm always keen to be working in a landscape I've always been um kind of uncomfortable with the idea of recreation full stop um being a tourist or being a being a visitor I always love The idea of actually having a real purpose, like a definite uh, work purpose for doing things. And so when you're out working with cattle in beautiful landscapes that we've got in hill country in Scotland, yeah, that's real. That's my kind of recreation is that that work is my recreation. I don't necessarily want to put up a deck chair and sit in the sun. I want to be actually doing something. Um, and when you're out and about, and you see your own cattle or you see your neighbor's cattle, yeah, it's a kind of a reminder that this is a workplace. Countryside's a workplace. It's, it's a lot of things, but first and foremost, it's a, it's a place where you earn your living. So, and at the same time, too, I'm aware that all I've just said just there is all really airy fairy, kind of uh, difficult to pin down. I'm not exactly going to be drawing black and ro- black and white um, figures around any of this. It's all just like a feeling. It's just a, a feeling that that this is really important, but. I, I can't quantify, it's difficult to go to government and they support this because it's culturally really significant. Uh, well, the government says prove it. And you say, well, I, I can't, but it's like this gut feeling that it's, this is just really important stuff.
1: No, well, thank you very much, Patrick, for sharing your passion for hill cows. Really enjoyed your time and thank you very much.